Welcome to Reinventing Education, Compelling Teacher Development. I'm Rob McLeod. In this episode, we ask, what is school for? And tease apart the difference between school and education. What is school for? In one word, school is for education. Now, school and education are often used as synonyms, but it's very important to distinguish school from education. The dictionary definition of school is an institution for educating children, or alternatively, any institution at which instruction is given in a particular discipline. I'd like to tighten that up. I'd like to use the definition that school is a place with a set of practices where people go to get an education. So if school is a place with a set of practices where people go to get an education, what do we mean by getting an education? The dictionary definition of education is the process of receiving or giving systematic instruction. The process of receiving and giving systematic instruction can take many very different forms. Systematic instruction has a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, there's direct instruction, rote learning, memorization. At the other end of the instructional spectrum, there's self-directed, open inquiries, and things of that sort. Now, I'm going to pause because there's a lot to unpack here alone. As you move along the spectrum of systematic instruction, we move between varying levels of autonomy control over content, control over the process of engaging with the content, and various levels of responsibility between teachers and students. We will revisit these points. For now, I just simply want to acknowledge that there are overlapping agendas at play here along the spectrum. The agendas of the student, the agendas of the teacher, and the agendas of society. Okay, as I said, I'm bookmarking this for now. Autonomy, content, process, responsibility, these are themes that we will revisit many times. They will weave themselves throughout future episodes. We'll unpack the overlapping agendas of students, teachers, and society too. For now, just know they will be part of an ongoing conversation. To return to the starting point, school is a place with a set of practices where people go to get an education. Education is the receiving or giving of systematic instruction. What this systematic instruction looks like varies. The giving and receiving of systematic instruction appears to be the purpose of school. So I'd like to shift the conversation from what is school for to what is a school education for. I'd like you to pause and I'd like you to ask yourself this question in order to see what your answer is. What is a school education for? You're welcome to either pause this podcast, hopefully you come back, or use the following moments of pause here to answer this question for yourself. What is a school education for? So what is a school education for? You've got your answer, or possibly answers. And I've asked this to many people. And so far I've found that everyone's answers fall into one of these three buckets. 
Let's see where your answer or answers lie. Our answer is either centered around the idea of the development of citizenship, self-improvement, or occupational preparation. These three categories of citizenship, self-improvement, and occupational preparation come from Mortimer Adler. When others are asked, what is school education for? I have yet to hear an answer that doesn't fall into one of these categories, but who knows, maybe you've just stumped me. Citizenship. A school education involves moral instruction and the developing of social skills. We learn how to be with others through the norms of our society. Self-development. A school education helps us become aware of our unique individual strengths, interests, weaknesses, and to self-actualize. And finally, occupational preparation. A school education gets you ready for the workforce. Often, this looks like getting you ready for the next necessary stage of school to access that job. School gets you ready for the next step of school. It's intended that primary school prepares you for secondary school. Secondary school prepares you for college, university, or the trades, and you continue to the next stage of schooling until you transition from school to the workforce. It is proposed that you enter your occupation with the entry level of skills required for it. Citizenship, self-development, and occupational preparation are all present, but often they're not given equal consideration. One of them usually takes priority over the others given a school's context. The theme of values is where this conversation goes next. But before we go there, let's recap. So far we've said, what is school for? School is a place with a set of practices where people go to get an education. This education is the receiving or giving of systematic instruction. What this systematic instruction looks like varies greatly. Systematic instruction varies along a spectrum. At one end, direct instruction. At the other end, open-ended, self-directed instruction. Regardless of where you are on that spectrum of instruction, the purpose of a school education is the development of citizenship, self-improvement, and occupational preparation. So that's the underlying structure. That is what every school shares. But every school doesn't look the same. The elite private school in downtown London, the one-room schoolhouse in rural Africa, the military academy in North Korea, the students who are homeschooled in the Bible Belt using Khan Academy Online, and the outdoor classroom in the forests of Australia appear to be radically different. But what all of them share are being a place, or many places, with a set of practices where students are getting an education the approach to the instruction can vary greatly, but the purpose of this education has the following intended outcomes. Development of citizenship, self-improvement, and occupational preparation. And one of those outcomes is likely privileged over the others. So we've just laid out the skeleton. Underneath our skin, our skeletons have all of the same bones, but on the outside we look very different. What goes on top of those bones shapes one's appearance. How can schools share this same skeleton but look so different? 
values. There is a diversity of values in education. Different values shape what a school education looks like. Values inform beliefs about what is right to do. We hope this episode has laid out a map. Our next few episodes will identify the different values within education. We'll highlight how different values inform beliefs about citizenship, self-development, and occupational preparation. These values actively disagree with each other and make it difficult to make large sweeping statements about education. If we are to talk in a meaningful way about the future of education, I believe we must start by identifying the diversity of values currently present, which are informing what we do and how we do it. Our next five episodes will be dedicated to naming these values and exploring each in depth. Now it's time for the second half of the podcast where we chat together both Brennan O'Leary and myself and unpack some of the ideas discussed in the first portion. Brennan, where would you like to start? Uh, good evening, Rob. Yeah, good evening. I'd like to start right there. Um, so obviously I had an input into your drafting of the podcast, but the way you organized the ideas and presented them were, were essentially your interpretation. Um, so maybe I'd just like to go over the main purpose of the episode and just uh, just just maybe... Yeah, dig into that a little bit more. So you started off by defining uh, the key question, what is school for? What is the purpose of a school education? And then um, a school is an institution where we go to get um, an education, uh, an organized education. Um, yeah, I think that's a fairly non-controversial uh, description of what school is. Would you agree, or is there something there that that you have to struggle with to define that term? No, I think with a lot of the terms that we had used within this, it was a matter of like tracing them back to the least controversial word that we could use. Sure. Um, so no, for me, that didn't seem controversial. And I think one of the like themes from this episode and probably our next handful of episodes is I think we're trying to zoom out to the highest level possible. Like if this was a Google map, yeah, we're trying to zoom out to the point where you see the whole earth in Google maps so that we can sure. then zoom in on very specific particular parts. And I think in a lot of discussions about education, it's kind of like they only zoom up a few steps so you can see the city or the country or the continent, but not the whole picture. Yeah, I guess so. And then, um, you know, we will get into the idea of like formal and less formal education. So I think for now, yeah, fine. As a, as a school, as an institution, whether that's a series of buildings or something that looks slightly different, but um, um, and then I, I think, yeah, to, to 
to define education uh, as different from school and make sure we're not using them as synonyms. Um, this, the process of receiving and giving systematic instruction. Now, uh, my heckles go up there with that word instruction because, you know, it obviously had the connotation of the Victorian schoolroom and the um, filling up of the empty vessel with knowledge and information. But I, I think you kind of dealt with that by defining it more as a set of practices um, rather than you go here and, uh, and you are uh, instructed at or education is done to you. It's more like the processes uh, connected with education that happen inside that institution. I mean, it's not a question, but I'm just stopped speaking there <laughs> to see if you wanted to respond to that. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't want to jump too far ahead of where you're at right now, but I feel that was a distinction worth making. And maybe we could have just left it at, and there is instruction. But I felt it was important, at least at that level, to just indicate like, hey, and there's a range of instruction, but that is sure. something we will get to actually as soon as the next episode and the following four episodes or so is to look at the values behind why there are very different approaches to instruction. Yeah, and instruction is only one... It may be the catch-all term, but actually, of course, we're talking about all of the skills you acquire, all of the knowledge you acquire, and all of the applications of that skills and uh, those skills and that knowledge. And so, we're using instruction as a very broad catch-all term, but it, it essentially means any skills or information that you are um, encountering and using and learning during this. Uh, uh, process of education yeah, and that's a distinction i didn't make in the first part which i really think at the end of the day all instruction or teaching comes down to it's either about content like some degree of facts yeah. or it's about skills or some level of developing a competency in something so it seems like at the sure. end of the line all education either moves towards the content side or the skill development side Sure, I, um, and it's usually seen as uh, information versus skill, and, and often that is seen as learning facts versus uh, learning actions. Uh, that's a simplification. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the actual practice of those uh, skills and the application of them. So actually learning how to do it, learning how to ride a bicycle, and then using those bicycle riding skills to um, deliver a newspaper or race in a, in a top class bicycle race. Or the top class newspaper deliverers oh, bike yeah. race. All of that, all of those things, those are that's a great application of those skills that you learned. So yeah, I think that was maybe one piece that could have been added to this discussion that these instructions, whether direct or open-ended, self-directed, this approach to instruction is serving either facts or skills. Yeah, and I, I think I'm not trying to catch you out there. Like when we were having the discussion to 
the, to draft the first part. That was something that uh, obviously I, I we both kind of like looked at and moved past quickly. And then it's only looking back at it later. It's all oh, actually instruction uh, might uh, might not might need some more description to 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 actually say what uh, we mean by that. But anyway, hopefully that's clarified. Um, so then you kind of, once you define that, you went to kind of um, briefly talk about instruction, as you just said there, not to get too far into it, but I think you used some terms that possibly uh, people who are not familiar with education, or even if, if they are, may not um, necessarily understand exactly what you're saying. So if you say something like there's a spectrum going from direct instruction to self-directed inquiry and then you were assuming that the middle ground is what we normally see in schools which is something more um i guess your modern school room um maybe it's just worth taking a minute or two to describe uh, a little bit more direct instruction versus a, a middle mainstream what we might call chalk and talk with the teachers talking and children doing activities and then more of a uh, inquiry-based or self-directed inquiry at the other end of the spectrum. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I guess off the top of my head, another way to look at that spectrum is terms we use like student-centered and teacher-centered. Sure. So I'd say a teacher-centered education is more on that direct instruction side, whereas a student-centered education is more on that self-directed side. And what differentiates those two is choice, ultimately, in sure. the direct instruction, teacher-centered instruction. The choice on what content or skills are being covered is essentially entirely up to the teacher. Sure the choice of engaging of how a student engages with that material again will be selected and determined by the teacher and i would say the direct instruction is more associated with what you alluded to earlier of hey this kid is an empty vessel and i'm going to fill them up with the facts and the knowledge sure well i mean the 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 most um, stereotypical or, or reductionist version of rote learning, direct instruction is is the one room Victorian schoolroom, where you've got your three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and uh, and, and it's, it's based very heavily on memorization. It's based very heavily on regurgitating information. Now, we've moved a long way from that. Well, we still have memorization in a lot of places for very good reasons. We learn our phonics sounds. We memorize uh, multiplication tables to help us with quicker um, arithmetic. Um, and in many places, we, there are still things that like traditional spelling tests, memorizing um, lists of words or rules that, that, that can be applied. Um, we will, I guess, at some point deal with the um, the pros and cons of direct instruction. But I, I think the 
it still exists in some forms within our classroom, but what we see more is what I would put in the middle ground, which I described as uh, chalk and talk, um, which is the chalk on the chalkboard teacher talking. Uh, yeah, it's still very teacher centered, even though it's like the middle of the spectrum in terms of what we're describing. The, the lesson would normally be a 20 minute block at the beginning where the teacher would instruct a video or some kind of activity where they would be questioning the children all in one group and then students would go off and do an activity for the next 20 or so minutes, 20, 30 minutes. And then maybe come back together at the end for five minutes. It's what you would see in most mainstream classrooms if you went and observed a lesson. Um, yeah, and then to the far side of that yeah. would be the self-directed or more open-ended instruction where students have some degree of choice in sure. terms of the content they're learning about. Students will have some degree of choice in terms of... Um, the process or the method in which they engage with the content and yeah students have more choice in terms of like their products to show their learning how they've demonstrated what they've learned um, yeah so the the choice and the freedom and even authority to some degree shifts more towards what the student um, is wanting and shifts more towards self-teaching but it's not explicitly the student teaching themselves. Yeah, because uh, of course, before you hit that kind of very end of the spectrum, the the extreme of entirely self-directed learning, which is very, very unusual to see outside of possibly university level. I would argue that my course at university, which was an art course, was as close as you can get to self-directed learning, as in you set the brief and six weeks later, you bring up the criteria and you present and you negotiate. But I'd say within primary school, the kind of furthest you would get is the IB primary years program model, which is using a guided version of inquiry in which the teacher will still get a very big say in uh, the, the, the main activities, the main assessments, the main ways that students um, learn information, but students will have some autonomy uh, in that system over what they learn and to some extent what they do with that information. But yeah, yeah I, I think, just wanted to, yeah. And the very furthest extreme of that, I would say, would be some elements of the unschooling movement that I've seen. Sure. But I'd still say it's governed by those same ideas of the kid has the say in the content. And, you know, in some extremes of the unschooling, it's like, the kid only ever chooses what they're interested, who chooses when they work on it. Well, the kid does whenever they want to. Um, how do they want to engage with it? That's entirely up to the kid. And I realize there's even a spectrum and different philosophies within the unschooling movement. Of course. But that's the furthest, furthest, I think, extreme in the self-directed of the only structure being there's no real structure. Sure. I just think it's worth, yeah, like as we're just setting out the stall here, of things we're going to look at heavily in the next uh, X amount of, of episodes. Um, yeah, I think coming back to that middle ground of the mainstream classroom is going to be where we start lots of our discussions. And we will look at the other ends of the spectrum, but lots of it will be inside that mainstream classroom.
Um, so I was going to talk about the idea of content because we use it a lot and we basically use it like teachers and if nobody picks us up on it, then we may have no idea what we mean by content, but I think you kind of covered it as in we mean basically the thing we are teaching, the piece of information or the objective of the lesson. So the content may be how to describe a character. It may be how to find a line of symmetry or something like that. Um, so when we say content, in many cases, we mean the, the main purpose of that particular lesson. And some um, schools and some systems will, will have more content to cover or it will be more heavily defined um, within the curriculum uh, and teachers will, to a great, greater or lesser degree, be able to decide when and how they cover that content. But again, I just wanted to possibly mention that. Um, yeah, so um, is there anything we've said so far that's brought up anything that you wanted to talk about, or should I just continue plowing on with my Continue notes? plowing, O'Leary. All right, so you threw in something that I, I really don't think many people will have come across before, and, and if, if people took a second to think about it, they might think, what is, what is this guy talking about? You talked about uh, overlapping agendas happening inside the classroom. Now that's, uh, I know where you're coming from, of course, we've had this discussion before, but I think it, it kind of is uh, probably a good idea to unpack what we mean by having multiple agendas happening inside the classroom. Yeah, so life is complex, and part of the complexity of life is that there's a lot of things happening all at the same time. And even when we're using words like, hey, school and in the classroom, one aspect of what's happening in the classroom is that there are many parties with different agendas. And what do I mean by parties? So it, it can be the student, group of students, it can be the teacher, it can be the school board or the government in charge of the schooling. There can be parents, there can be the community just in the town or city around the school. And I don't want to say at the intersection of all these points is what we call the school, but within a classroom, let's say within, an, within let's go back to the learning the line of symmetry example you threw it earlier. There will be some kind of student agenda brought to the table and that that's almost impossible to unpack here, but that could be anything from the kid wants to get good marks in the class because parents have promised them an Xbox if they sure. bring home an A or whatever. So that's an agenda that a child's bringing. Or it might, Sorry. Okay. it might be a fear of like, oh, math is always really hard for me. Like they've got this belief and they're bringing an agenda of like wanting to overcome something. There, there could be a huge range. Like I won't even try to go through all the examples, yeah. but, but, but essentially you're using the word agenda there to mean something along the lines of motivations and how they act on them. Mm -hmm. so it's like the kid comes into the classroom. They're really, really happy to learn. They've got a positive attitude and they actually are engaged with what you're, you're doing. They're going to be very motivated. They're going to want to learn. They're going to engage well. Um, but 
that will not always be the case. But but this is kind of what we mean by a gender in this case, would you say? Yeah, and I think there's also the the idea of like a desired outcome from this. So the agenda for the kid might be, hey, I want to get perfect on this symmetry test. Sure. Or the the symmetry activity we're going to do in 30 minutes. That's the kid's agenda in this experience. Sure. The teacher's agenda, and again, this could take many forms. It might be a personalized agenda with like, hey, little Timmy's been struggling with math. I want him to do well in this lesson. It's yeah. likely more than just individual student-based. It's could be, hey, I have an agenda that the board has told me I need to raise math scores in grade two. So one of my agendas that's online for me in this interaction with this kid is how can I best support student achievement or the agreed upon markers of student achievement. And again, I don't want to get bogged down in these examples, but just trying to share the idea that each party is bringing a different desired outcome to the interaction. Sure. And I think, um, again, without going too far down that rabbit hole, one of the things that we will talk about a lot is what the student brings into the classroom and their agenda and, and how the teacher is really important in not just taking what the government tells them through the curriculum and not just what the school board tells them, but also their own personality and their own agenda as in how they feel they can make a difference, how they feel they can um, help and, and improve the lives of their students. So I think that's gonna be a key point. Yeah, and, and I would just balance that out to say not all agendas are always positive too. There could be just the teacher whose agenda is, let's get through this, it's the end of the day on Thursday and like, I've got softball after this. Sure, I mean, we can use it just to mean like goals or aims on, on the bigger and smaller picture, of course. But yeah, I just listed down uh, the, the, the kind of overlapping agendas and agendas that you hope are working together and I'm going to I'm going to stress this positively. When these uh, when these goals and motivations and agendas are working well, um, we see the best side of what education can give. So you're looking at the parents, you're looking at the teachers, you're looking at the learners, the children, you're looking at the wider society and societal discourse. You're looking at the government and school boards. Um, that's quite a balance. That's a that's a that's a, a real a real challenge to keep that all in balance. But that's certainly a, a noble aim, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's worth like highlighting that it's happening. It's yeah. worth having on our radars that hey, that's already something that's there. Sure. Okay, so now I guess we get into the meat of the. Um, of the podcast uh, and you know my worry is that we're going to talk for five hours here in this kind of uh, chat section uh, I would try not to go off into too many um, on too, too many tangents but I just think what you said in this particular podcast was really um, really important and really set out what we're going to do but just had so much in it and so the main core which we're just getting to is like what does the what is the purpose of school education? I asked a bunch of people the same question as well, including my own kids, my family, my friends, and, and other teachers. And 
Yeah, I got the same um, as you uh, paraphrased Adler's three, which weren't quite, I think the, the modern version is, is a little bit more streamlined. I think his verses were more like, use your leisure time productively, which um, it is great, but I, I don't think that's quite the same as self-improvement. But, but anyway, so we came down to these three essentially, um, three essential ideas of getting ready for work and college which is what the common core actually is subtitled or was, you know, here's our curriculum and its purpose is to get you ready for work and for college. Um, we had this idea of citizenship and moral values within a social context. And then I'd say the most um, uh, controversial or the, the least thought about one was this idea of self-improvement and self-development um, yeah, maybe go for the easy one first. Just briefly, we can go back over um, this idea that school is to get you ready for work. I think you said a lot, but is there anything else you want to just clarify? Yeah, I'll start this comment with a disclaimer. And I think both you and I in these first two episodes have now said, we will get to this later about 50 times already. Yeah, of course answering that question is what makes up the next four podcasts as we've we've kind of determined them is to talk about the interplay and the dance between school and an economy and not this reductionist sort of perhaps cynical idea that like well school's only there to build our workforce i don't think it's we shouldn't be as cynical as that. It's like, no, both of these are products of our society, the economy and education. And it makes sense to use parts of school to prepare you to function within our system and within our society. Um, and I don't know if maybe we went into it in the level of detail that it could have, but I know from our discussions, you've made the point before of school gets you ready for the next stage of school. And there's also a filtering that happens within school. There are some people who, you know, in secondary school, don't get the marks they need to enter that university program that they need to then move on to this job after university. And there are some people who do get the marks in secondary that allow them to move into that university program that allows them to be released into the workforce. So sure. I think it's this idea that at some point there's a barrier where you shift from school into the workforce. And if yeah. you follow backwards from when you enter the workforce, there's a series of layers or filtered steps that you went through in the education system um, to get there. Yeah, and they're quite explicit. They're like, okay, in England, you do your GCSEs at 16. There's one step, you do your A-levels at 18, or you go and do a, a vocational course, uh, and then you can move on to um, a university level, a master's level, a PhD. And at each one of those steps, you can move away from education and move into the workforce. Um, uh, the, the simple, old-fashioned answer was the higher up you get, the more money you make. Um, Obviously, that, that doesn't hold entirely. Um, 
but but I think um, we cannot ignore that that exists. That we currently live in a global, heavily capitalist society, and a big part of what we do inside school has that explicitly as a um, as a goal. I just want to drop in here that actually one thing that's crazy is if that is your goal, we actually don't track students or follow them in any way. So once your children leave you and leave that primary school, that primary school has no knowledge of how well their children are doing in secondary or up into university or the jobs they do. That information is not available and it's not so without again going off on a sidetrack if that is a goal um you would kind of want to know how effective your practices are in getting closer to that goal and um you know one of the things that's always amazed me is how little we actually know about how successful what we do is in the long term in the long term we kind of just have faith and belief that we're doing the right thing and it's working we're going to get into this a lot more, as we keep saying, as we go into the different types of schools with different belief systems. Um, yeah, so I guess moving on, um, the other the other kind of um, answer is the moral development and the social skills. Now that has been there from the very start too. So the the, the ready for work training the workforce arguably came at the same time as the moral instruction. Um, depending on where you look historically, but they kind of emerged at similar times inside um, compulsory education. Yeah, and I would I would say all three of these emerged with compulsory education, and that as we begin to look at the values, that will be where the history of compulsory public education started. Was the reason we've started this is we're training people for occupations, for work in the military and in industrial factories. And that's the occupational preparation. Sure. There. And, and the, the layer of the uh, educated um, professional class too, because it was serving that purpose. So in fact, the original purpose was to train the priests, train the doctors, train the Sure, and, and I'll pause there because I we will make a we will go down this rabbit hole. Of course, yeah. Very thoroughly, yes, of course. There was training sure. for those specifics before, but you know, the big bang of compulsory public education is Prussia, the late seventeen hundreds, and sure. all of a sudden a government for the first time in history says, Nope, everybody's getting this. And we're going to say what happens there. And, it, and this isn't being cynical or a conspiracy theorist or anything, but they were just like, hey, rather than start military training at 14, imagine how much better our military would be if we started them at five and we made sure they could all read and write. And that essentially was <laughs> where this game sure. started. Yeah. It's changed dramatically since then, but it, it started with the intention of occupational preparation and helping to cultivate a certain kind of citizenry that would support those kinds of occupations. Sure. And, and sure, probably in a distant third, that idea of self-improvement, self-development um, played a very, very small role in that. But I think there's been 
obviously in the last 200 years, pockets of education that have also attempted to privilege this idea of like, no, the reason you are here is to develop you, regardless if your development serves you in an occupation down the road, regardless if it matches the norms of society, this is about you. But then we also get into all these conversations of like, oh, well, they did a degree in this for six years, but can't get work in that. Well, I think that is a different question, sure, because that's still, it's still locked into the idea of, of getting that education so that you can get an occupation in that area. So I'm going to do a, a liberal arts degree. I'm going to do a, a degree in, in creative writing. I'm going to do a degree in visual arts so that I be can become a creative writer or a visual artist as my occupation. Well, ooh, actually, it starts to get a little bit muddy there. But I'm going to do a degree in economics so I can become an economist as my occupation. And that's clearer. That's generally a clearer line. So, but um, I, I, I'd say this, this one, this last one, is the controversial one, is the one that we're going to pick into a lot more because we both believe that it should be at least equal with the other two because the individual um, has their own role as well as an individual, not just as a member of society. And as long as it's a healthy um, connection between the individual and society as a citizen, but also as an individual, uh, we kind of both believe that that's a better kind of way for education to go. I would say that we, we, we think we want people to flourish as individuals as well as great citizens. But I'd say one of the reasons why it is controversial, not so much because people say, oh, we want to hold them back. Oh, it's more that we're worried that school's not the right place for it. Because if you want to be a, a football player, then you join a football club and you train there and you flourish over there and you find your, your goal and your dream. If you want to be a, um, someone who uh, is a musician, you know, you go pick up a guitar and you form a band and you, you flourish that way. We don't necessarily see that school is a place where we should be putting an emphasis on that. Um, one argument is that school is a social institution anyway. So school, as it's funded by uh, the government and, and uh, it's funded as a social institution, those first two aims of workforce and uh, citizenship make perfect sense. But to focus then on the individuals, mm, we'd say that actually only, we only really want to improve the humans inside our education system to the extent that they are going to be able to improve society. Um, I guess that's kind of where, where the answers that from people when I've asked them about this third answer, this self-flourishing, this is kind of what we keep getting back to. It's not really, maybe it's not really the place for school. Yeah. And I think there's a case to be made for that. I also just look at, you know, anecdotal reports, but I think education again is the best when you're optimizing occupational preparation, you're optimizing the development of citizenship and you're optimizing the development of the individual. And I would say like everyone has one of those stories of like, oh, I had that teacher who, you know, sure. totally met the curriculum, got me ready to be a citizen. 
And the reason that they stood out to me was not only did I get better marks that year and not only did it help me get into whatever law school or something like that. Sure. Not only, you know, did they teach me the meaning of teamwork and the, the meaning of contribution to whatever, but they also helped me see this about myself or believe in myself to this degree sure. or and that's whatever. More, that's, I guess that's more implicit. Um, as opposed to some of the more explicit ways to get it into the curriculum as in, hey, this is a critical thinking lesson, or this is a lesson where you are going to be, a, uh, you're going to direct your own projects or work as a, as a group to work on something you've identified as your own strength or weakness. I think that's a more explicit way of dealing with this um, self-actualization kind of strand. And that's definitely something I'd like to talk about much more because I think when you frame it as you did, we people will be really on board with it, but also will say that, oh, kind of that happens already. That happens naturally. And it's like, yeah, it kind of does in some places, but we want to make it explicitly inside the values and systems of the school in the same way that um, getting you ready for work, getting you ready as to be a, a responsible citizen is explicit. Um, I just think, yeah. So we, we have talked about this a little bit before, but um, hopefully we'll get a good chance to dig into that over the next few episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I kind of, that's, um, that's where I reached the end of my, my notes, my feedback. You um, then just dropped in this idea that over the next five episodes, we will be looking at those different values, the different value systems and how they affect the school and the education that goes on inside it. Do you want to give us a little bit of a spoiler on um, some of those next five episodes? Yeah. So where we got to at the end of this episode was just laying out, like I said, the skeleton of this. It's like, all schools everywhere share everything up to this point. But after this point, this is the fork in the road where everything diverges and we see this huge diversity in what school is and what it looks like and different ideas, different practices, different beliefs, different buildings, different access to technology, different hours, different whatever. Sure. Although, from what I see, there's essentially four values that govern all of this diversity. So even with all of the differences and disagreements and outright arguments about what we should be doing in education, you can trace all of those shoulds back to these four values. And I'll name them really quickly right now because it's not a spoiler or whatever, but um, self-discipline, ambition, sensitivity and development um, and we'll use the next episode to just introduce those four and kind of share the definitions of what we mean so you can kind of see them beside each other and re and begin to feel some of the differences and well, compare yeah. and contrast them a little bit um, and then the following episodes will take each value discuss its historical context discuss where it has come from what it arose in response to, um, and then, yeah, follow each of those down the rabbit hole to really be able to identify them in the educational world. 
And just to kind of pick up on that a little bit, because I, I obviously have more context, but if I was hearing those four words for the first time, I may not be able to connect with it. It may just sound like four random types of values. I couldn't necessarily see the connection between them or the fact of they're a hierarchy. It's not like you said value one, two, three, four, or um, or kind of or, or kind of made explicit where those came from. Do you do you want to do that now? Yeah, I, I would say they have a historical context in that each, if you look at the history of education, came online after the previous one and arose in some kind of response to evolving what education was. Sure. Each of those four also connect back to this idea of occupational preparation. All four of those are in alignment with the economies and some of the societal dynamics um, at play within countries around the world. And yeah, the, the sort of governing principle that we're using here is, um, spiral dynamics or the ideas of stage development, um, from integral theory, just to say like, you know, when we look around at education, we can see that these four different values have arisen along similar lines to what's laid out in this developmental trajectory in integral theory. Sure. So that they are inside the spiral dynamics concept. They are almost the point where there's a sea change, where there is a, where you can kind of draw the line almost between this um, era of schooling or this era of society. And then, and the following era is dominated or, um, propelled more by a different value. So the fact is that those four values may not uh, obviously look like four sides of the same uh, coin or, or same shape, but they are what you have come down to as the best single word description of each of those four eras of schooling or phases of schooling. Yeah, and it, yeah. without going into all the terminology that we could I think really common language to describe this is just like there's a traditionalist view there's a modern view a postmodern view and we don't really have a word for it yet but like a post postmodern view of what education should look like according to that set of values so let's assume that those four terms you've just given don't immediately lead people to, to leap to conclusions about what that means because of the interpretation of modern, postmodern, and post-postmodern, um, the definitions we're going to give as we explain what these schools look like may not necessarily be the ones that you just jump to when you hear that term. Oh, okay, modernism, I know what that is, so that must be what this school is. Maybe they are, but um, I would, yes, yeah, suggest that um, once we have unpacked what each school system looks like, then hopefully those terms will um, make a lot of sense. Or we can negotiate and argue whether or not they um, are applicable. Um, sure, good. Yeah, and I, I think just as a closing point, I think through this discussion, I've tried to envision myself as a listener who you know, doesn't know anything about integral theory, might not know a few of the terms that we're referencing here. Um, 
And I guess one of the things I just want to say is I think if I was a listener right now and I didn't really know a few of the things we were mentioning, I, there would be some part of my skepticism that would kick in of like, I, I follow what this guy's saying so far, but I don't know where he's going with this. And is there going to be some stage 32 Xenu revelation coming down the road? Like, is he taking me down some crazy path that this guy's got these crazy conspiracy theories? And this isn't, are going wild. There's some anti-capitalist bent coming or whatever and all this yeah, kind of sure. stuff. Yeah. Um, so do you, do you have that, Rob McLeod? Is that your, <laughs> is that your agenda? <laughs> No, and I, I guess I just want to lay that out because we are, the reason we're approaching this podcast in bits and pieces moving forward is I think we're trying to start the conversation about education from a place that I've yet to find anywhere. It's not the place we start to talk about education. Like I said at the start of this, you know, we never zoom out to see the whole earth and start zooming in. We kind of like zoom out to a certain, like, you know, seeing your country on Google Maps and then sure. zooming within the country yeah. to like clarify points. And I think we're just trying to bring this conversation to like, well, here's the absolute furthest you can zoom out about education. Here's what all schools across the world share. Sure. And we're also going to attempt to identify how schools differ from each other at the level of values and keep working down further and further from the abstract to the more concrete day-to-day -day practical things. Sure. And with the aim of then using that information to improve the systems we work in to have a discussion about how this could lead to um, different developments in education. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we're we're trying to be straightforward, straight ahead, and say this is this is what we're interested in, and we're going to unpack it. So, yeah, next um, next episode, I'm pretty interested, um, pretty excited because I, I guess that's where we start setting out the um, the different types of schools. Um, I, I'm tempted to use the colours that we keep that we've used in our conversation and call it okay, blue man school and orange man school, but I understand that these are these are terms that you've introduced to me via spiral dynamics, and I really don't know what they mean. And so I'm almost certainly using them absolutely incorrectly. So I'm going to be careful to make sure that I don't start throwing in slang names and terms that, 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 that are just for fun, but actually don't serve to clarify. So, you know, call me on that. But I'm, I'm excited and interested to hear the next few episodes where we set it out okay this is what a traditionalist school looks like and um yeah and i'll say it one last time for any listeners who've stuck with us to this point i think this is the true point in which this podcast begins this next episode will be i think where we 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 shift from just the purely abstract to helping you be able to see where and when these values are active in the educational context that you're within and how they inform what's happening at your school, at other schools, around the world, historically past, present, and potentially future. So I guess just before we do wrap it up, what, um, how, how are we now hoping or wanting listeners to engage with us? Yeah, so... We have our Facebook group. You can find us Reinventing Education Podcast on Facebook. Um, I think to start, 
it's just cool to get to know who's out there. So feel free to join if you want to. Feel free to introduce yourself. And it's one of the intentions of this podcast that this isn't just for you and I to break down and articulate these ideas. It's also to build a community and be able to connect the people who are interested in education at this level and have a vested interest in improving and reinventing what it is we're doing and to be on the cutting edge of the transformation of education. That sounds lofty, but a good starting point is connect to us through Facebook and and at the risk of just sending like self-promotion like all podcasts do. Um, if you've heard this or you hear the next couple of episodes and you think like, hey, I know that one oddball person out there on my staff or some other teacher is really passionate about this kind of stuff, share it with them and um, yeah, just see if we assemble a a gaggle of people who are interested in approaching education from this perspective. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Brennan. <laughs>